Well, good morning. Good morning. It's so good to have you here. We've got the pool in front of us again, so guess what that means? A, another baptism, which is going to be an absolute opportunity uh, this morning, so we're looking forward to that. Uh, if you are here, you should have received one of these flyers. Uh, I encourage you to look at the flyers. It has uh, upcoming information. That's really important. If you're not here, I would encourage you to go to the website, uh, thechapelnj.org, and you'll be able to get some information. Now, the big thing I want to focus on is the movie night that's coming up on December the 9th, Saturday, December the 9th. The doors open at 5.30 p.m., and we will be watching Hear the Bells, and we're also going to have the lead from Hear the Bells um, speak with us that evening. What I would encourage you to do is this. It's a great movie, um, but it's a great opportunity to witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. So if there are friends, uh, people that you know, I would encourage you to invite them. Let's fill this sanctuary with a number of people that evening, uh, not only to uh, hear a message from the actor, not only to see a message from uh, the movie, but also to be able to plant seeds of gospel grace during this Christmas season because it's so important. Uh, I've been pondering on the concept of God's faithfulness and uh, the fact that he is a faithful God. He is a promise keeper. Uh, decades ago, there was a group called Promise Keepers. A number of men uh, made promises and we went to different stadiums. And, and it was funny because a lot of us broke those promises very quickly because we fail uh, day after day. We are sinful human beings, but, but God is the great promise keeper. Um, he, when we are faithless, he remains faithful because he can't deny himself. So today I want you to um, lay your foundation on a God who promises and keeps his promises. He is all-powerful so he can keep those promises. He, he's infinitely wise. He can keep those promises, but he is perfectly loving. All the promises are yes in Christ. Remind yourself of the blood-bought work for those promises and find your great foundation in him. Would you pray with me? Father, as I look at my own life, I can fail far too often times. The things that I desperately want to do, I don't do. I get so easily distracted. I find myself uh, making choices that just don't seem to make sense. And I know that almost every person that is here, that's hearing my voice, could say the same thing if we're honest. Lord, I thank you for the fact that in spite of our faithlessness, you remain faithful because you cannot deny yourself. I praise you for the fact that all the promises that you give us, scores of promises in God's word, are yes because of the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for the privilege that we have to come and worship you, uh, to come to a uh, sanctuary and, and to worship together. Father, thank you for the freedoms that we have in this country to do that. I think of those believers around the world that don't have those same freedoms, yet they are gathering today to worship. In spite of the danger, in spite of the trials, in spite of the persecution that they may endure. So Lord, I pray that we would feel the comfort that we have here, but think of brothers and sisters that are not in that same comfort. Lord, I pray for brothers and sisters that are here that are struggling with health. Uh, Lord, I pray uh, that you would continue to bless them 
Lord, I pray that you would, uh, those that are struggling with mental struggles, emotional struggles, relational struggles, Lord, I pray that your gospel grace would comfort them this morning. And Father, as we sing, help us to sing to your glory. As we hear your word preached, I pray that it would be for your glory. As we hear a testimony of one going into the waters of baptism, I pray that it would all be for your glory. In Jesus' matchless, holy, and powerful name we pray. Amen. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, worship his holy name, sing like never before, oh my soul, I'll worship your holy name. The sun comes up, it's a
Thank you. You may be seated. It's kind of nice to be up here in a swimsuit and flip-flops. Like, I, don't, I don't get a chance to do that very often, so kind of a special moment. Uh, um, and don't worry, it's not an ongoing thing, but we are rejoicing that we have a baptism today. Um, let me take just a moment to explain baptism to you in case you're visiting with us. Um, there's nothing that is, that's going to happen magi magical today when Katie gets into this water and I baptize her. Uh, it's not like I take her down and when she comes up, ta-da, you're a Christian or something like that. Katie is already a believer because she's trusted in Jesus Christ alone as her Lord and Savior. It's not what we do, it's what he's done. And we're saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. That is it. And yet he calls us to be baptized because it pictures what happens to us when we become a Christian. Because if you're a Christian, when you trusted in Christ, you were united with him into his death. That's when we bring you down under the water. Burial and resurrection. And so we talk about resurrected life. And so we picture here what actually happened to Katie when she trusted in Christ. So it's commanded that we do it. It's a wonderful picture. And I would say to anybody here today, if you've never been baptized, come talk to us. I mean, last week I kind of made a joke like, hey, Tim's talking about the flood next week. We ought to leave this up. Well, here we are, you know. And we'd run this several weeks in a row, Tim, if we needed to, right? We'd be happy to do something like that. Anyway, if you're interested in getting baptized at some point, please let us know. We would love uh, to give you that opportunity for you to declare to everybody that you are a forgiven follower of Jesus Christ. It's a great joy. Katie, I'm going to ask you to come and share your testimony with the folks. Good morning. So two years ago, I had my second daughter, and I struggled a lot. While the, first birth, the birth of my first daughter was joyous beyond words, the second one was really terrifying. And one underlying factor is that I'm on the autism spectrum. It makes things like noises really unbearable. And as you can imagine, there were some noises when you add a newborn into the toddler mix. So although I had been in counseling um, in the past, I did it again, and the new counselor asked me something I had never been asked before. She said, can you think of some positive outcomes for being on the spectrum? And I had not considered that before, and I absolutely can. For one thing, I'm really stubborn. It can be called stubborn, it can be called obsessive, but the truth is that when I believe something, that's what I believe. So with that sort of personality, thank God, I was born into a Christian home. I'm a rule follower, so if mom and dad say we go to church and we believe in Jesus, then that's what we do. Now, of course, following rules isn't what grants you eternal life in heaven, right? A personal relationship with Jesus does. However, my upbringing dropped me in some pretty powerful places to help me develop that. My church growing up was my second home to me. I was raised Lutheran. I was heavily involved in my home church, as well as the Greater Lutheran Church, and one of the best experiences that I had attending was attending two national gatherings. And I don't know if you've ever heard of those, but like youth pack convention centers for um, a couple days of worship and service and study, and I left those feeling on fire. And they rejuvenated me to go back into the secular high school that I was in and um, try to follow God's word there. Now, the Lutheran Church, unfortunately, is like a lot of others. 
there are certain good things that good Christians do. So you get baptized as an infant, you have your first Holy Communion, and then you're told when you're going to be confirmed and reaffirm your baptism. I'm not sure anyone in my group um, accepted Jesus the day of their confirmation because they were told to stand up there and recite their beliefs, but I know I did. Um, I may not have gotten it through my church alone, but with my mom and dad's support, I was exposed to so much beyond the church that I learned about a personal relationship with Christ. I knew that I was a sinner, and even in ways I had tried to be a good Christian, I had messed up, been harsh, been overbearing, but through his death on the cross, I understood that I was not only forgiven, but driven through his spirit to try again. I asked Jesus to be my Lord and Savior that day, and I went through my seasons of trials like we all do, but my faith always got me through. Some of those trials completely changed me as a person. So to think back on those and realize that God loved me enough back then when I wasn't so good at being a Christian, um, that's, that's hard to even comprehend, that love and that forgiveness. Um, it goes beyond human understanding, and I'm so humbled and thankful by that. The Lutheran church, however, slowly drifted away from biblical truth. Their sermons were filled with a lot of feel-good stories based on the Bible, but we never really stopped and studied verse by verse like we do here. It was a hard decision. I remember walking out of a restaurant, pretty hysterical, when my parents said they were leaving our church, but I went. And I liked the church that my parents went to, but at that time, I had just met the person that I knew God had sent for me to spend the rest of my life with. I knew that we would be moving together and that it would be too far for me to be involved in that church. So I never sought out membership there. Um, after we got married, I went church shopping and I thought I had found a home. I dedicated my first daughter at this other church, and, but we attended there for quite a while and I didn't know anybody's name. I had never spoken to the pastor, so it just wasn't quite that home that I had in my Lutheran home, my Lutheran church, I should say. So we went church shopping again and that's when I got here. Um, I cried within five minutes of coming in this, these doors because immediately Pastor Finn, Tim found me and he started networking, he's very good at that, and that made me feel comfortable. Um, members said hello and they introduced themselves. I hadn't found that in other churches, so thank you for being that kind of congregation. Um, so now a few years later, we are sure that this is the church that we want to call home. And although I have worshiped consistently my whole life, this is the first official membership I'm seeking after leaving the Lutheran Church. And since the Lutheran Church does not practice adult baptism, and I never joined elsewhere, I have not taken the opportunity to share my testimony and to be baptized through immersion after placing my faith in the cross work of Christ. And so that's why I'm here today. trust in Jesus Christ and him alone for your salvation. Yes, I do. Based upon your profession of faith in Jesus Christ and that alone, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.
continue to worship with us. Yeah. 
Heavenly Father, hear our prayer this morning. Lord, on this Thanksgiving weekend, we thank you for putting a new song into our mouths, giving us new hearts that are written with your word on it. And Lord, we'd ask that as we continue this worship, that it would be pleasing to you and would remember, we would remember how good and great, great you are for us. And Lord, we thank you for saving us from the mighty floodwaters of our own sins and bringing us through the baptism unto your death on the cross so that we may know your name and abide in your name forever with you, Lord. And we thank you more than that, even beyond that, for adopting us into your family this day, Lord, that we may enjoy the thanksgivings that we have had already this week, remember the families that you've given to us, and remember and think of and, and be in awe of the family that you've given to us in your name and remembering the feast that we will be part of in the future in your name oh lord today we ask again that you would make it so that you would continue to heal the people in our congregation who are struggling either in their sins or in their health lord that you would heal them from all this lord in the power of your holy spirit and in your name and we ask lord that we would also remember all the things that you've done for us throughout our lives and throughout all of history, past, present, and future, Lord. And we would remember even the simple things, such as the moonlight that you've given us to make it through dark and dark and dark nights, Lord. And then also we ask that you would make it so that we would remember how you've brought us through the storms of life, Lord and shown us that you will always remember for us and care for us by the power of your Holy Spirit that you've given to us as counselor. And you've put that remembrance in the sky, in the sun, after the storm, through the wonderful beauty of your rainbow, Lord, that makes us think and remember how beautiful you really are, Lord, and how wonderful you are and how much you care and love for us. Now, this day, Lord, we ask that you bless all of these people in this congregation and give them your hope and give them your power. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. All right. Good morning, everyone. So we have uh, some friends visiting with us today from the Chelsea uh, over there in Belvedere, a number of you are familiar with that, so there's some folks that are visiting in the back uh, that are here, so if you get a chance to greet them and uh, welcome them, I want to encourage you to do that. Why don't you turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Genesis chapter 6, Genesis chapter 6, the title of my talk this morning is His Mercy is More. So we're going to spend some time this morning discussing chapters 6, 7, and 8. Uh, I can tell you in, verse, in chapter 8, I'll just be covering a few verses to kind of bring to a, a conclusion this discussion on the flood that happened in the time of Noah. I think this morning, if I was to ask you uh, for the three most popular or well-known Bible stories, 
I, my guess would be that most of us would mention the story of Noah and the ark, right? Some of you may have had this beautifully painted above your child's uh, crib when they were little, right? Because there's a lot of reflection on the story of Noah that uh, is interesting, right? Because it, honestly, the story is not real kid-friendly, okay? But we do tend to focus on certain aspects of it through which we find comfort, and we should. We should. But the flood is a saving and at the same time incredibly sobering event. I also realize that as I begin to focus on a discussion about the flood, that there are a lot of questions that come to people's minds. There are theological questions, and that question would be something like this. How could a good God bring devastation to the whole world as we know it. There are also scientific questions that people ask. Was the flood account uh, about a global flood? Right? And that's, that's a good scientific question. And I think I would argue that the fossil record around the planet on the top of mountains argues for the fact that it was in fact a global flood. There are practical questions how could Noah possibly gather all the animals into the ark, and was it big enough, right? And questions about the size of the ark uh, in, in an incredible way demonstrate that it would have been quite capable of handling the number of animals that were present. Another practical question is how much water would it take to flood the earth to the degree that it was flooded? And then the other question would be, where did that water go after the flood, Okay, I do not have time to answer all those questions. I can tell you, I took the time this week to read up, and so I can tell you there are answers to those questions, but I don't have time to answer all those questions today. Okay? And it's interesting that as you read through the account of the flood, that the primary focus is not on the things that I just raised questions about. Okay? Um, so one of my questions is, why did Noah let the two cats get on the boat? Okay, that's be one of my questions, okay? But that tends to miss, right? Those questions that we ask tend to miss the fundamental story and the fundamental truth that is presented in the account related to the ark. One other thing I would like to say is that, that on a historical note, that upwards of 10 cultures had flood accounts, Okay, so if a flood happened, it would be likely that through those that survived the story, the account of the flood, that they would be sharing about that. The, the most popular one Doug mentioned last week is the Babylonian Gilgamesh epic, which is the story of the flood and survival. What all of the accounts bring forth is this, a flood had happened, that the flood had happened was well known, it was, in fact, a divine judgment, and some survived. Okay, so those are the things that were commonly understood amongst the accounts. And then there's a lot of variations, as you could imagine, as those legends around the true story grew and multiplied, they became greatly embellished. It's fascinating that when you read this account, it is rather streamlined and focused. And I think it's important to remember that. Now, one of the tensions that comes up in our day, I think, relates to this idea of a God who actually judges, 
right? So that's kind of the elephant in the room, uh, if you will, when you bring up a discussion about Noah's Ark, because it is a rather catastrophic and sobering account. At, 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 in the minimum, it is that. And so what, what is the problem with that for modern humans, for, you know, sophisticated, mentally people? What, what is the problem with it? I think the answer is that we don't want a God who is just. That is a God who holds us accountable. Because the God of the story of Noah is seen by modern day people as a God who is angry, capricious, and ill-tempered. Right, That's kind of the way that people tend to, when they read that story, they think a God who would do that would certainly have to be seen in this way. So it's fascinating that people don't want a God who holds us accountable, nor do people want a God who would let evil go unpunished, at least those who harm them. It's fascinating, isn't it? Right, So we live with that kind of attention. We don't want a God who judges but we can't live with a God who doesn't, okay? And it's important that you understand that tension as you look at this story. There's something in humanity that has an unlearned response that when there is unjust, wicked, or sinful behavior, something must be done. It is an involuntary response. Just spent a little time with uh, toddlers in our family over the last couple days, right? And you'll notice something very quickly when you're around toddlers. They, they demand justice. <laughs> and they do it loudly, they do it unashamedly, they do it boldly, insistently. I had it first. My response is, so? <laughs> well, what do they say? Hey, if I had it first, I have the right to still have it. And they took it from me. What, what's implied in that? You need to do something about that, Poppy. Resolve that problem for me. It, they didn't learn that. that. That is an instinctive response of humanity because we, created in the image of God, have a sense of right and wrong, and we know that sin needs to be punished. But when God does it in the flood, we react. Okay, and I'm just saying there's something hypocritical about knowing that justice must come, but that when it comes, I have a problem with it. Okay, and so those are some of the issues I think that come up as you look at this account. So I want to look through this account by just pointing out three things the violence of man and the pain of God, the promise of judgment, and the offer of hope for deliverance. Okay, some of this Doug kind of introduced last week at the beginning of Genesis 6. So this I'll just hit uh, quickly, and I want to begin by reading for you from verse 5 of Genesis 6. It says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that, and follow these words, that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Okay, and you start to get a sense of what that ancient setting was like. It was every inclination of every heart, only evil all the time. 
Okay, and what is that doing? That sets up the idea that there is a need for some type of divine intervention or this will go very badly unchecked. Okay, and I think I've illustrated this for you in the past. A few years ago when we had riots running rampant in cities and no one was doing anything about it or very little about it, a slap on the hand, there was something about watching and unraveling morally of culture, a growing of violence that leaves you feeling unstable and demanding somebody must do something about this. Okay, do you understand what I'm saying by that? There's just that something wells up as you see something wrong happening. You have this desire for someone to intervene and to do justice. Not to let it run unchecked, because if it does, it will certainly bring a threat. So there is this violence of man seen in the bent of the world, right? That every and only and all were bent away from God. Verses 11 to 12 of chapter 6 says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. That is that God was fully aware of the nature of the situation and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people of the earth had corrupted their ways. Okay, so you kind of get, again, it's, so it's verse 5 and 6 repeated again in verses 11 and 12. And, and, and here's what's happening. The ones charged with governing the earth that God had created are corrupting. And instead of man filling the earth, violence has. And the idea of violence is, is, is a fascinating concept. It has the idea of oppressing the weak, taking advantage for personal benefit. Okay, so that became the tone morally of the ancient world. And we also see, uh, I think very clearly in verses 4 through 6, that wrapped in with that violence was also this idea of a sexual perversion. Okay, and it's fascinating how those two things tend to have such a devastating effect upon cultures. And I hope that stands out as a warning to the world that we live in today. That the moral digression merits and brings about one day the judgment of God. Because it has a devastating effect on culture. And so God doesn't let that go by. That's mentioned along with the idea of violence as being the violence of man in the world. And it's interesting also that the pain of God is pointed out here. In verse 6 it says that he regretted that he made human beings on the earth. And his heart was deeply troubled. This word is used to describe someone who may be thinking is an illustration of getting married and they've got their heart set on it and the one that they love and long to be married to departs just prior to the marriage and their heart is bereaved, it's broken, it's frustrated. And what it tells us is that God is kind of, is, is bound up with us as people created in his image, and that he grieves as he watches this breaking in the culture. Isaiah 49 verse 15 points out this heart of God in relationship to sin amongst his people. God says of the nation of Israel in Isaiah 49 15, he says, can a mother forget her nursing child? Even if she could, I will not forget you. God is bound up in the care and love of his people. 
In the next verse, he says, I have written you on the palm of my hands. That is God's, God's love, God's affection for his people that calls him into action to confront sin within his presence. So we see the bent of the world away from God towards violence, towards behavior that would be detrimental and destructive to the whole. And we see the pain of God as he sees this brokenness. And yet there's this character in verse 9 that really is central to verse 9 down through verse 19 of chapter 8. It says, this is the account of Noah and his family. I want you to see the description of Noah against the backdrop of violence and sexual perversion. There is this individual, this character that stands out as a bright light, if you will, against a very dark backdrop. Verse 9 says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Now, here's the thing I want you to see. It is not declaring the perfection of Noah. As you read through the rest of his story, you will find out that Noah is far from a perfect man, but his life is distinct in the culture in which he lived. In a culture characterized by violence, known for violence, known for sexual immorality, Moses stood out as someone that was different. He was a man who caught the attention of God. The word blameless means that he was whole, that there was a, 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 a general emotional, spiritual health to his life. And it also notes that Noah walked with God. And it's interesting in the original language, I am no expert in Hebrew, so I read commentaries to help me to understand the original languages, okay? And the way that this is often pointed out is that with God, Noah walked, okay? And, and there, there is in that writing, they say, an emphasis on the fact that he walked with God, that there was this close relationship with God that was transformative in the life of Noah and caused him to stand out. So the, the focus of this text, one commentator said, is that Noah's life is in pronounced contrast to the darkness of the world in which he lived. These statements highlight his character, Regarding the matters of evil afflicting his generation, Noah was living rightly, and he caught the attention of God. So that's the violence of man and the pain of God in contrast to this outstanding individual that is pointed out for us. And the second thing I want us to look at, beginning in verse 13, is the promise of judgment. The world is, it, 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 as best as we can see this, is self-destructing. It's, it's putting itself in a frame of mind that does not portend well for its future. And so something must be done in order to temper this. In verse 13, this is what it says. And let's begin in verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence. Because of them, I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. 
Okay, so that gives us this now, this promise of judgment. So we see this deep perversity and brokenness. Now we see a promise from God of judgment. And, and it's, it's important, I think, that you place it against this knowledge, this data that is given about the world slipping into a, a, a sense of brokenness, of being self-destructing. Okay, it's corrupting from within and threatening the whole. The moral temperature of Noah's time required a divine response. And one of the things I want to point out as we look at this idea of God's judgment is to realize that, that judgment can often be saving, okay? And I was thinking this through, and I was trying to think of a good way to illustrate this, okay? So all of you young people that are in school, this, this illustration relates to you. Okay, so one of the things that, that a school system will do, particularly a, a, a local school, let's say like Warren Hills Regional High School, okay, if you have a student or students that are getting so out of line that they're uncontrollable, you have this option of suspending them. Okay, what's the purpose of that suspension? The purpose of that suspension is to remove an element that threatens the health of the whole. That suspension is always taken by the parents with a big smile, right? They're always glad their child's being suspended. Is that true? No, they resist it. But there are times when a school system, an organization like that, needs to take a radical step for the benefit of the whole. Okay, and here's what fascinates me. We understand it at that level, but when God acts to protect, we have a problem with it. Okay, so, so just grasp that thought. There are times that a serious step is necessary to protect the good of the whole. That's why in America we have things called prisons. Okay, it's a place where someone is suspended from life for the good of the whole. And the hope is that they will learn something during that time so that when they come out, they are no longer a threat to the whole. Okay, and the idea here is that there is this need for judgment. It is the only way to preserve and to save. So here's the definition I would give of judgment because what you're gonna learn in this text is God tells Noah that he's gonna bring judgment on the whole earth. Okay, and I think, I think these ideas of was, was the flood a global event, okay, I think the Bible is, is rather clear if you read the accounts of the flood throughout Scripture and here in Genesis that this is a large-scale event, okay? And God tells Noah about that event 100 years before the event takes place. The Bible also tells us in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5 that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So as he's going about doing what God called him to do, he is communicating the truth that a flood is coming. So there is, it's not that God sees the, the evil on the earth and just capriciously reacts in an ill-tempered fashion. No, he waits 100 years and he has Noah there as a standard of righteousness and as a person who is speaking righteousness, as a call to people to come to God, to repent and to turn. So what is judgment when it is the judgment of God? And here, this is a definition. I'm not, I know I got this definition from somebody, 
but I can't remember who I got it from because it goes back too far in my life experience, okay? And at 63, you can start to look further back than you can remember, okay? So what is judgment? The judgment of God, it is the reluctant yet necessary response of a holy God to human rebellion. Okay, folks, what am I saying? What I am saying is there is a time when God may hold off on what is deserved. That's what I mean by reluctant. I do not mean unsure. I mean patient. But his judgment is also a necessary response. Go back to the analogy of the grandkids saying, they took, I had it first. Okay, it is necessary that you do something. And that is true of God. Okay, so it's the reluctant but necessary response because of the evil that's happening of a holy, just God. And that's a category that you and I do not have a grasp on. Okay, we acknowledge the holiness of God, but no, we do not live up to that standard. And so it's hard for us to understand that. But it is the reluctant but necessary response of a holy God to human rebellion. So when Tim Hoff shakes his fist in the face of God and say, I will do what I want to do, there is a holy God who one day will respond to that act of rebellion. Okay? So this idea of judgment is this reluctant, necessary response of a holy God to human rebellion that comes with large doses of patience. I was thinking as I was studying this portion of the gospel of Luke chapter 19. When Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem, he's, he's coming from the Mount of Olives and he's, he's coming into the city of Jerusalem. Here's what the Bible says. He looked at the city and he wept over that city as he foretold the judgment of God that had to come against it. Reluctant but necessary response of a holy God to human rebellion. He looked at the city that would take his life for your saving and mine. And he wept tears. Folks, there, to me, it is a mystery that a holy God would weep over my sin and over my judgment and yet know that it is ultimately a necessary response to my sinfulness. So God, God moves in this text to be a God who judge, judges, who does not overlook, he does not love so much that he lets things go because that ultimately is not loving. One writer said this, he said, Violent, violence flourishes secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take up the sword. Violence flourishes, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take up the sword. I remind you as we look at this text of, of the book of Romans chapter 12 and verse 17, where God says through the apostle Paul, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So there is this need for judgment that emerges in this text and that I think becomes very clear. One of the questions I want to ask as we address this, this, this idea of the promise of judgment, why does God judge the world by a flood? Because there's certainly other ways that God could have done that, okay? And, and I think some of the answer to that is, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, you find that the world was covered with water 
and then out of that water emerges this, this new heavens and new earth that God creates, right? And I think this idea of, of bringing judgment to the world by a flood, there is this picture of cleansing, and there is also this picture of a recreation or a new creation that starts to emerge, right? Because the, after the flood, what you're going to see is that the old world, now cleansed, starts to reemerge, and you have this new command from God to Adam, or to Noah, I'm sorry, to reproduce and to fill the earth. Okay, so I think this idea of a flood has to do with that the wickedness of man was so great that it demanded the judgment of God, his reluctant but necessary response. He does it through a flood because that flood would give this beautiful picture ultimately of cleansing and new creation. And I think it's very beautiful how that's borne out in the waters of baptism based on Romans chapter 6. Okay, that we come forth as a new creation. The last thing I want to look at this morning is the offer of hope for deliverance. So we see the violence of man and the pain of God. We see the promise of judgment. And then in 14 through 17, we see the offer of hope for deliverance. Okay, so God has laid out for Noah very clearly what's going to happen. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth, verse 13, verse 14. He then begins to give specific direction to Noah. So let's read this together. So make yourself an ark, and that is a, a barge, if you will, a large boat of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 350 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it leaving below the roof an opening of one cubit all the way around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. Now, I'm going I'm to try to summarize this for you quickly, okay? So God's calling Noah to build a vessel for the saving of some. Okay, that becomes very clear as you read through this. So how does Noah respond to this direction from God? Okay, and, and, and it's interesting. We're going to see that, first of all, there is faith by building. Okay, now one of the things you need to know is that as God speaks to Noah and is promising a flood that will require a large vessel for survival, that rain has not yet fallen on the earth. So Noah embarks on a building process that is going to seem to his local community crazy or cuckoo. Okay, it's going to be like, did you see what Noah's doing? And Noah is going to do this for approximately 100 years. Okay, that takes an enormous level of faith. So he, he responds to the call of God by building the ark. Here's the dimensions of it in feet, in th numbers that you understand, which I could have just read, okay? It's 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high with three floors, Okay, that approximately works out to 101,000 square feet. Okay, this whole building, not this room, this entire building around is 41,000 square feet. Okay, so the ark that Noah is called by God to build is approximately two and a half times the size of this entire building, which is 41,000 square feet. So you just got to... Let that settle in, okay? A lot of scientists, I read all this this week, 
have gone through and, and figured out how many animals approximately the size of a sheep so that you may not be taking the biggest elephant you can find, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and have proven that the ark would be more than sufficient in size to deal with this. Those that are in naval architecture, okay, have noted that, that the, the shape of this vessel, its size, would have made it incredibly seaworthy and capable of dealing with all kinds of trauma related to the storm of the flood that was coming on the earth. Now, verses 18 and 19 are fascinating verses. Uh, well, let's, let's read verse 17. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive. Now, folks, here's the thing I want you to see as you read through this. Does God say to Noah, hey, Noah, let's, let's, let's get a desk and get two chairs. I want to sit down and have a talk with you. I want to I negotiate with you. I want to I see if you're willing. I want to see what you think of the terms. Is that how this goes down? Okay? And the answer is obviously and clearly no. All right? This, this is not a negotiation. This is the sovereign God of the universe telling Noah the way things will be. And in telling him the way things will be, there is a promise of hope for Noah and his family. Right? Because God says, I will make a covenant with you. That is to say that this is a unilateral and unconditional covenant. God does not say if. There is an assumption that Noah, as a righteous man, standing out in his culture, will heed the call of God and absolutely and totally fulfill the will and call of God. And God makes to him this unconditional, unilateral, that is one person setting up the agreement and telling Noah the way things will be. Okay? And that is, what is that? That is the act of a sovereign God exercising his right to rule in the world as he pleases. Okay? And that's something that I think very clearly emerges in this text. So you, you, you find this sovereign saving as, 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 as Noah begins to build the ark, God is making this kind of a promise. And then verse 2 of chapter 6 to me is a fascinating uh, verse, 22 of chapter 6. It says, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. And folks, here's the fascinating thing. That's all you get about that 100 years. Okay, Noah do this, do this and this, do it like this. Verse 22, and Noah did everything exactly as God said. Right, that is a picture of an amazing level of obedience that is being expressed by Noah, a level of faith, because what, what's true? There is no precedent of rain. And Noah is building an ark, presumably on dry land, and he's promising something that has never happened before. So one of the things you and I need to learn is as we begin to walk in obedience to God, sometimes obedience to God will look foolish to the world around us. I remember being a teenager. I remember being in my early 20s. I remember people saying, what, you don't do what? 
You don't think X is fun? You don't do Y? Right? And there was this, this chatter starts to come against you. That is nothing like what Noah experienced as he built this ark. As he became the crazy man of the ancient world for a period of upwards of 100 years. He walked in obedience to God. He acted in faith, number one, by building the ark. And, and I do want to say this to the dads that are with us today. It's interesting that when God addresses the people of Noah's day, particularly the group of people that he plans to save, that he addresses the head of household. And there is an assumption in this text, and I think it's borne out in Hebrews 11, 6, and 7, where the act of Noah in his obedience to God, it has a saving effect on his entire family. And I don't think that we as men should miss that. That we before God have a God-given obligation to lead in this realm, in obedience to God, our families, as we claim the covenant promises of God. Okay, so don't let that slip by you in this text. For you young men, who are marriage-minded someday, remember that God has given you an incredible responsibility. And then when you consider moving into relationship and moving into marriage, God is giving you a mantle to carry of responsibility for your family. And Noah stands and assumes that responsibility before God, and the result is saving from the wrath of God for his family. Second thing we see is Noah's faith by entering. So when you come to chapter 7, so 6.22, Noah did everything just as God commanded him, verse, seven, verse 1 of 7. It says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Now I'm going to come back to that at the end. Okay, this proclamation of righteousness over Noah comes at the end of his obedience to God. Okay, and I want to I point to what I think is going on there when we get to the conclusion. What does God say to Noah? Go into the ark, you and your family. What is lacking at this point? What is lacking at this point is any evidence. It's not like there are storm clouds forming and Noah's like, it's coming. They're going to go in the ark and wait seven days for the rain to begin to fall. That's a fascinating thing, isn't it? How much faith is God calling for from Noah? Verse 13, I want you to see these verses. Look at verse 7. It says, And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters. Get down to verse 13. On that day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. Verse 15. Pairs of all creatures that had the breath of life came to Noah and entered the ark. How many times has entered the ark been said? I think it's four times. Okay? So how is Noah proclaiming his trust in God? He's entering the ark, and it's almost like the writer's camera focuses for a moment on this act of faith on the part of Noah. That on four occasions, we find obedience in response to the command, enter the ark. And so there's this focus on this obedience of faith over time, and there is trust in God's proclamation that redemption comes only by God's provision 
in the ark. So there's a catastrophe coming. How do you avoid it? Build this ark, and once you're done building, enter into it because it is God's saving means. The other thing that I think is interesting is when you read verses 8 and 9, right? Because one of the questions that comes up when you think about the story of, uh, of the ark and Noah is, how did Noah get the animals to come to enter the ark? Right? That, that, would, that, would, that would pose a little bit of a, of a dilemma, Verses 8 and 9 answer that question. It says, pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and of all creatures that move on the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark. And here's one of the things I want to say to you is this. As you look through this account, it becomes clear that there are miraculous or divine interventions in this story all along the way. There is no way to read this story and be anti-supernatural. Okay, it becomes clear that God's hand is in everything that's happening here. To the degree that that is the case in surviving on the ark, I don't know. Okay, but it's very clear that the ark is God's means of preserving life and that God is bringing life to the ark to be preserved. And then he directs Noah and his family to enter that ark and their faith is demonstrated in that entrance. Verses 10 to 12 begin this horrific event of the deluge. Verse 10, it says, after the seven days, so Noah and his family are on board, after seven days of being on the boat, the floodwaters came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, and that's important because when you go back to the previous chapter, chapter 5 and 6, you'll see that Noah is called by God in his 500th year. So you have these calendar markings or chronological notifications along the way. On the seventh day of the second month, on that day, here's the question, where did all the water come from? All the springs of the great deep burst forth. The floodgates of the heavens were opened and rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Right? That's the account. Okay, here's what's coming. This is the, the deluge. Water from beneath, water from above in catastrophic quantities. Verse 16 is to me one of the most uh, fascinating verses of this text, and it is, I'm putting this under faith by building, faith by entering, and then faith affirmed. How does no one know that he did the right thing? Where is the assurance that God is with us? We get on the boat and nothing happens for seven days. And then verse 16 kind of rings out. Listen to what this says. It says, the animals going in were male and female of every living thing as God commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut Noah in. Okay, there's something about that statement. Was Noah watching the door close? We know this, there's only one way into the ark. There's only one door in the side of the ark. And that was the life-saving entry point. 
And by faith, Noah directed his family in. And, and I don't know that Shem, Ham, and Japheth were all in accord with dad. I don't know if some of them thought, I don't know about dad. <laughs> I mean, there's part of you can say, well, he is getting a little old, okay? <laughs> He's in his 600th year. So you, you can kind of step back and say, okay, I kind of get that. But is dad kind of... Uh, slipping. I won't confess to having those types of discussions with my wife, okay? Because all our parents are alive at 95, two of them, and 89, two of them, right? So there may be discussions like that occasionally. Are they, are they okay? And I can imagine his sons may have been thinking to themselves, okay, dad's leading us. Dad's guiding us. Dad had a reputation that made him believable, he was a righteous man in his day. He lived in stark contrast to the brokenness of that generation. And when he called his sons, you remember when Lot called his sons to go in or to leave the city? They laughed at him and needed to be drug out because he had conflicted his soul. Noah is living a righteous life so that when he calls his family to do something that does not make logical sense, they say, okay. I, was their faith strong? I have no idea. The Bible does not address it. Noah is the central figure in this text. Here's a fascinating thing. As you read through this text, all you find Noah doing is obeying God. That's all he ever does. He never utters a word in this account. Now, I know he speaks because 2 Peter 2.5 says that during this time, he was a preacher of righteousness, calling people so that they would be without excuse when the judgment came. He's calling them. He speaks to them. But in the text, he is utterly silent. And it is the hand of God working in and around and through his life, the life of a righteous man who always did, from what we can see in the text, what God told him to do, despite failures that I know are coming in his life. He's righteous. He's obeying God. He's following. He's doing the hard thing. He's calling his family to obey when it is difficult to do that. And his faith is affirmed when God shuts the door. My, my, the thought in my mind, if Noah wasn't watching it close, let's say they're up in the boat, they're on the floor that they're going to live on, and all of a sudden, foom. All of a sudden that closes, and they look at each other, and their faith is affirmed by the hand of God shutting them in. Folks, that's something that is a blessed gift from God. When in your life, God does something definitive to validate your obedience. And in this case, God does that for Noah. Well, verses 17 to 20. It says, 40 day, for 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth. And as the water increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. So what's happening? Can we just be honest? There is rampant drowning and devastation. And the ark, by the means of judgment, is lifted above it. They are saved from it by the judgment of God. Through the means that God had provided, they are lifted above it. Verse 18, the waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water is judgment, but the ark is floating on the surface of it. They, they rose greatly on the earth, and 
all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to the depth of more than 15 cubits. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, and all creatures that swarm over the earth and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People. Animals and creatures that move along the ground. And birds were wiped out from the earth. Only Noah was left. That is to say, only the ones in the saving means of God escaped. Only Noah was left. And those with him in the ark. And the waters flooded the earth for about 150 days. Now, what you'll notice when you read verses 21 to 23 is that the camera again pauses. It pauses. It pauses over this topic of death. And on a number of times it is mentioned. This is the definitive judgment of God. And then chapter 1, or chapter 8, 1, and then 19. Chapter 8, verse 1, it says this. But God remembered Noah. All the wild animals, the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth. And as you read through chapter 8, which you can do this afternoon, you find the recession of the flood, and then ultimately when you get down to verse 15, you find God saying to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wives and your sons and their wives, and bring out every kind of creature, be fruitful and increase and fill the earth. So you work through this sequence, and at the end you find mercy expressed in promises kept. Now, I want to touch base on one question, and then I'm going to close. How did Noah become righteous? There's part of you that may respond and say, well, well, Noah became righteous because Noah did the right thing. He, he obeyed God. God told him to do something, and he did it. That's how he became righteous. But when you go to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7, you, you, you find this amazing account of Noah. It says, by faith Noah being warned by God about things yet unseen, in reverence prepared the ark for the rescue of his household. And what is that saying? It's saying God called Noah to do something, and Noah responded to the call of God with what? With complete faith. He took God at his word. He understood that there was a judgment coming and the only way to be saved from it was by placing faith in God's sovereign or divine means of saving, which was the ark. And it's interesting that Hebrews eleven seven says, in reverence he prepared the ark for the rescue of his household by which he judged the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. So what was the cause of Noah's saving, of his being declared or made righteous, as the book of Hebrews chapter 11 tells us repeatedly? It was that he heard what God said, and he took God at his word and trusted God and did what God told him to do. Now listen, the obedience does not save him. That he believed God and then acted in obedience demonstrates that his heart was genuinely changed by God. So he believed God and was counted as righteous. So here's the question for you this morning. 
Have you believed God? We see in this text, the Bible tells us that, that Noah's ark was saving. The floodwaters carried the ark above the waters of judgment. The ark shielded Noah and his family. But unlike Noah's ark that shielded them from the wrath of God, Jesus himself bears the storm of judgment that we deserve on the cross. And folks, I don't want you to miss this thought. God's saving means from the judgment of the flood was an ark. God's ultimate saving means. So that ark points forward to a greater saving. Noah built an ark, and by it his family was saved. Jesus stood on a cross and bore the wrath of God. And by his saving work on the cross, we are saved if we trust him. We are lifted above the storm of judgment because Jesus was willingly submerged in the judgment of God. And folks, so what's the story of the ark about? It's about the judgment of God that is deserved. But when, Mo, when Noah obeyed the command of God, he built an ark that turned out to be saving for his family. And in his coming, the Lord Jesus Christ stood on a cross endured the full wrath of God, was submerged under it for our saving and for our forgiveness. Mark 10, 45 says this. It says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve by giving his life as a ransom for many. So what the ark was for Noah and his family, Jesus Christ in a greater way is for everyone who comes to him by faith. What do I have to see about myself to come to the saving work of Christ? I have to see that I deserve, deserve the judgment of God. And I may find the judgment of God irritating. I may think that it sounds unfair. I may resist it because I don't want a God like that. But I can't live without a God who doesn't bring justice. What I need to see is that I'm deserving of the justice that God brings. But because of his great love, he sent his son, Jesus Christ to stand in my place on Calvary's cross, to take the wrath of God that I deserve so that I can be forgiven and set free. Praise his holy name. So the ark is saving for all who believed. Noah's faith in God was evidenced over a long haul of obedience. And folks, here's the thing you want to think about, okay? My saving is not dependent on the fact that at one point I prayed a prayer. My saving is, is, is dependent upon the fact that the prayer that I prayed in the past was born out of genuine faith that has changed my life. Noah believed God, and over time he demonstrated obedience to God, which validated or authenticated his faith in God. Has that happened to you? Have you come to a point in your life where you realize that I deserve the wrath of God? I deserve the justice of God, but his mercy demonstrated on the, Christ, on the cross of Christ is greater than all of my sin. And just as Noah and his family found temporary saving from the flood by the ark, you and I find eternal life in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross by which he was submerged in the judgment of God and was raised to new life on the third day to prove that he is the savior of the world. Would you pray with me this morning?
Father, as we have come together this morning, we have reviewed a text that is incredibly sobering. It reminds us of your judgment, but it also shows your grace. We read in this solemn text that Noah found favor with God. And Lord, I pray this morning that there may be someone in this room who maybe historically has been resistant to the idea of a God who brings judgment and justice, who today may realize that I am a sinner deserving of the wrath of God, but because of his love, Jesus Christ stood on Calvary's cross, was submerged in the judgment of God so that I could be forgiven and set free. And so, Lord, this morning we ask that you would change our hearts. That for those that don't know you, we give them faith to believe. And for those of us that know you, Lord, let us stand in contrast to a darkened world. Let us be the light. Not simply people that complain about the culture that we live in, but people that shine the bright light of hope. Despite what that means, despite the objection that comes to that truth. Let us be people of truth. Let us be people of light. Let us speak truth to our family and to this generation and let them know that as the ark saves, so Christ saves. People who are violent, people who are broken, people lost in sexual perversion, there is hope in Christ. God, I pray that this morning we may see that I deserve the judgment of God, but his mercy today is more. And though I deserve to drown in a flood of God's judgment, through the mercy of God, I can be forgiven. I can be free. And I can have the hope of eternal life. Lord, we love you. We praise you this morning for the hope that you give us. Bless as we sing our closing song. And I trust, Lord, that if there's someone here this morning that needs to talk, that needs to confess, that needs to repent, that needs to be saved from your judgment that is deserved. I pray that you might give them courage to come forward as we sing and say, today, I want to trust Christ as my Savior and Lord of my life. Bless as we sing this closing song, Lord, minister to our hearts through it, I pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Let's stand together.
Father, your mercy is more. God, thank you that your mercy is more than our, <clears throat> our anxiety, our rebellion against you, and most importantly, our sin that separates us from you. God, we just ask that uh, you would help us to treasure your mercy more and more continuously as uh, we live in a world that is watching constantly. And the way in which you allow us to participate in salvation of the people that you wish to bring to you is by living out our adoration of that mercy. So God, I just ask that as we go today, we would uh, treasure that more and more and just think on it and pray on it and um, yeah, just save many through that adoration, Father. Thank you for this time together and uh, we pray you bless us as we leave. In Christ's name, amen. Have a nice week, guys.